What's up? Welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. This podcast is meant to give you a personal glimpse into the next era of investors and operators. This week we had on Ryan Bloomer and Adriel Burkow of K50 Ventures. K50 is a global venture firm that invests in early mission-driven founders transforming the world's biggest industries. Within their roles, Ryan and Adriel are in charge of finding and supporting founders, challenging the status quo and essential categories like health, education, housing, finances, and work. In this talk, we discuss heightened employee demands and the challenges for modern benefits, the complex future of remote education, reasons to be optimistic in the Latin America startup scene, and investing with a mission-driven thesis. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yo, everyone. We're very excited to come kick it with you all today. We've got some dope people in from K50 Ventures. Uh, spin off of the, the Kairos family, which I've been really close to since I first joined VC. Uh, because Jake Madwell was one of my first folks to really show me the game over at ABC, and he's in love with these people. With that, I would love to introduce Ryan and Adriel of K50. We also have a few other members of their team on. Uh, Jessica, what's up? If you want to stop and say hello really quickly. (laughs) And yeah, we'll be kicking it off with our first podcast ever where we have more than one person speaking with us. Clay and I are excited. I'll let you all decide how to do this. Ryan and Adriel, how about you all give us a quick one to two minutes on how you met and the story behind K50? Cool, yeah, I'll take that one. Tyler is Ryan Bloomer. It's funny that Jake met, we, I've known Jake since I was a kid, since I was a teenager. In any case, K50 also has a pretty long history. So K50 Ventures has really been in the works since 2008. And for those of you that know Kairos, that's when Kairos started and started off as the Kairos Society. And we would host an annual summit for the Kairos Fellowship each year. So we would put the spotlight on 50 amazing mission-driven entrepreneurs from our community. And we called that the Kairos 50 or the K50 for short. So We'd have these summits and we'd have them in, the first summit was actually in New York on the Intrepid Air Museum, but we've had some at Warner Brothers Studios in Laguna Beach, all all the way back from 2008. And so, in fact, I was actually one of the first K50 founders at the first summit on the Intrepid Air Museum and where I actually met a lot of my now friends. So like some of the other Kairos fellows that, that were part of, that were part of Kairos went on to build companies like Casper, Brex, Oil Rooms, Clear Motion, Outlet, which actually just went public, Freenome, et cetera. And basically it became a global community and we were in about 40 different countries. And eventually we started our first fund back in 2016. And so with our first fund, we built both built companies, so like incubated companies from the ground up, and we invested in companies. And in 2020, 
we realized we had this huge global community in 40 different countries. And at the same time, we were basically running two different investment strategies on the building side and on the investing side. So on the building side, we ended up basically turning into a venture studio. So we have now five companies in Kairos HQ. And then on the investing side, we had 130 investments. And we said, you know what? This makes a lot of sense to just split this up into two different teams and basically build out the platform for K50 Ventures. So back in 2019, we made the, the, the decision. And in 2020, we actually made it happen. And in March, we hired our first person at, at K50 Ventures, who's really been my right hand. And it's somebody that I knew I needed in order to do this properly, which is Adriel. And Adriel and I met back when he was at Flybridge. We would co-invest in, in some companies together. And he'd always send us these like fire deals from Flybridge that he was looking at on the pre-seed side. And we met a bunch of people through the process, but Adriel really was the only one that had the experience of investing in early stage, like the hunger to build something big virtually from scratch. And we were essentially starting anew. And then the passion to back mission-driven founders, which you'll hear about later, which is was core to our mission and it's been a great match. It's been incredible to build the next iteration of K50 together. I love it, man. I love it. I think that, so Clay and I have been doing the, the Confluence Access Fund and uh, Syndicate. And we were talking about like, how do you actually, and what was really cool is we came to the conclusion that the only things that truly make outsized returns over time, like you'll see some really cool tool that increases productivity across a specific function within a specific vertical, within a specific part of their value. And that might make some people a lot of money, but unless they go out and expand and become something that truly changes the lives of those operators of that industry, like a broader customer set, it doesn't really produce that 50, 100 X billion dollar company. And what I really love about what Pyros does is you all truly do, you're saying, try to impact the lives of the, the biggest population possible, like quite literally the 99%. You all wrote about that a lot in your 2021 manifesto, like from everything from housing to modern benefits and a myriad of other things. Can you all dive a little bit more into some of the opportunities you're excited about from the 2021 manifesto piece? Yeah, absolutely. This is, this is Adrian. I'm happy to take that one. You mentioned modern benefits, which I think is as timely as it ever is, especially with COVID. The HR tech space, the benefits space is something that I've been spending the last four plus years at. While I was at Flybridge, where we had a deep focus in the future of work, I started to notice this paradigm shift where really the employees were, or, or consumers were shifting what uh, employers were providing them in terms of benefits. So whether that's around wellness, fitness, even food, childcare. And if a, an employer wasn't providing these, these employees the right tools to be successful in the workplace, they're leaving. And that's part of the environment today where you have a ton of churn. You have, by the time you're you know, 30, 32, you have employees who've been in, in almost 10 different jobs. It's become pretty crazy. And part of that is the employees are actually demanding what they need in order to be successful, especially with COVID. There's been this shift toward obvious things, right? You have remote work being a new challenge for people, right? They're not commuting to the office. There's no company culture. 
you're missing those water cooler moments of working with you know managers and colleagues you're missing out on some of that learning and development moments you're missing out on, on building those cultural moments within your company you're suddenly forced to be whether it's your home or somewhere else trying to figure out the, the the right way to be successful in your job within your team then you have you know other things that people have been talking about right everything from from mental health so just the challenge of something as simple as, as Zoom fatigue or just feeling isolated, feeling lonely. You have employees struggling with, with childcare, right? I think it's, there's some crazy numbers out there, such as, I believe it, almost five and a half million uh, women have lost their jobs since COVID. And the challenge of managing your family, managing your work has, you know, has become obviously top of mind for a lot of people. So what are they doing? They're, they're finding employers or finding companies that are actually solving this for them. So when, when we talk about what are those, those shifts happening in, in the modern benefit space, it's looking at the companies that are making a, a workplace you know, in a more, you know, more powerful for, for these, these workers. So that's everything from, I mentioned childcare, right? So we've invested in companies like Winnie and, and Kinside, Kinside, which is a company that is you know, targeting employers to really expand the market for child care as an employee benefit. So, you know, providing those tools for someone to be successful in that workplace. And I think that's going to continue to shift. Like you see companies like Papaya Global, where it's focused on that distributed workforce internationally for companies. So as we go into that, into more of a remote work environment, how are employers providing those tools and resources to that distributed workforce. But yeah, all in all, it's, I think it's a super exciting space. Obviously, a lot of activity from you know, both M&A, from, from downstream capital. I mean, a lot of opportunity to be supporting these employees. True that. To pivot a little bit, you also talked about the opportunity for better digital learning tools. So Clay and I have heard a ton of conflicting debate over whether remote education benefits or whether remote education either benefits or hurts kids. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on it because it seems like an obvious transition that we probably can't avoid, but there are some secondary and tertiary impacts that we may or may not see. What are your thoughts? Let me ask you, so what type of challenges are you hearing about or, or thinking about? So from my first take, which Clay, you can hop in here as well. My thought is that I think personalized education is amazing. I think digitizing education in terms of having educational quality is a phenomenal. But I also think that there are a lot of in-person, call it behavioral traits that are learned that you only can get in person through natural bump-ins with your peers and working in group settings. And we are effectively mammals <laughs> that work in herds in practice, and we need to get those skills as much as we can. Maybe as the world evolves to being digital, that'll be less important, but I do think that having children in isolation is, is pretty harmful. Like my thought was that kids who are in their like early developmental states, call it ages like three to eight to maybe eight to 10 or something like that. Those people or those children who are going through their lives on remote platforms probably are missing a lot of development that are very key at that age. Clay, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I can just echo that. I think some of the opinions we've heard around the development of soft social skills at transformative ages, say like five to 10, that's obviously something that's lacking in a remote first world. So I don't know, we'd be interested to hear you guys take on that because we also, we've heard the other side of the coin as well of all the benefits of that are coming with remote education. We just wanted to hear how you guys are thinking about it. 
Yeah, you both bring up good points. I think the as far as the soft skills, I think it's something that even pre-COVID has been top of mind, again, talking about employers and top of mind for them. How do we support our these employees and actually having the right skill sets, soft skill sets to, to be successful in the workplace? And with the way we see e-learning and, and this remote education is twofold. Um, one is the opportunity, right? The opportunity is that you've now made education accessible to, to many more people, right? So you have people who are, let's give you an example, there's a, there's a, a virtual high school company that, that we spent some time with. And you have there's some of their students who are now doing project-based learning with someone who might be in Atlanta, Georgia, with somebody in, in Seattle, somebody who they may have never been able to connect with, who are going through that educational experience, having hands-on personalized learning, something they may have not gotten within the, the public education system at a price point that's now affordable to those family members, right? So you're also increasing that opportunity by having, some, by having a price point that is more, more affordable, more accessible to the population. So be, beyond the, the access and the affordability piece, I do expect that, and this is something we look for in, in the companies we're investing in, education models that are being built for the 21st century. So what I mean by that is, you know, if you look at today's education system, it's really fallen behind the, the digital economy, right? So when people graduate from high school, graduate from college, that maybe that liberal arts degree is not going to, it isn't going to resonate with the, that tech industry or the, the, the working in an environment that requires some of those digital skill sets or even some of those soft skills sets. And so what do we look for? We look for companies that are building those tools in order for somebody to be successful beyond that education system. So when we look at exactly, I mentioned this high school company, how are they doing project-based learning to integrate, doing digital experiments, doing, being able to actually maybe code a game together and to learn how to collaborate, to learn how to be creative, right? And those, those, building some of those soft skills is going to be essential as they enter into, you know, adulthood, as they enter into the workforce. The last thing I'll mention is that I think there's, right now we're forced to be in this remote environment, but I think the shift with the shift that's going to happen is a hybrid model. Because I completely agree with you guys, like, that, that experience that we've all grown up with is being able to, you know, hang out with friends in the hallways or play sports or something after school is, is, is crucial to, to that to growing up to that, that school kind of personal experience. So I expect there's going to be hybrid education models that are leveraging the more commoditized online content, but also building that personalized experience for people to, to be able to, to you know, enjoy the, the experience of growing up together. I, and I would just follow up on that. I, I think that the, the main one of the, one of the big things that we focus on when we're looking for founders to reinvent uh, a particular product or service within these pretty old industries, healthcare, food, financial services, et cetera, and education as well. We're looking at founders that usually can go full stack, so can actually build the whole entire product or service from you know start to finish. And that basically just gives them the control to then own pricing, be able to provide credit, and really be able to provide that product or service and, and own every single element of it. And I think that's something that we look at across any one of the you know, problems that we're looking to solve. So I thought I'd mention that because I think it is one, it's a big differentiator for us. Got it. Yeah, I'm, I think it makes a ton of sense. Ultimately, as someone from a 
I guess I don't want to call it under underprivileged background because like my parents are phenomenal, but like for someone who didn't go to the best schools in the world when I was coming up and didn't have an abundance of opportunity, like I think that if you can somehow normalize the actual learning context, like for instance, like kids who have 10, 20 year old books relative to people who are getting the new editions written by their exact professors every year, depending on like your level of privilege and in, in the education system where you fall in the stack. I think if the benefits of that, along with what you're speaking on in terms of people being able to meet outside of their existing social circles, far away, like them meeting the benefits of seeing people in person in their immediate neighborhoods. And I think you could probably also find either one, a way to supplement that or fix that through like maybe review childcare or like just having like social opportunities in your communities, which now that you have all this free time and like additional capital, yeah, you can just fix that, right? Like it's not if we can fix something as complex as all the other stuff we're talking about, we can't find a tech solution to fix the social dilemma that we're going through. So you all are on point. And I'm personally like, I'm going to track your portfolio in that space. Like, incredibly closely and hopefully at some point co-invest you all because I think you're you're on on point. I've talked to a lot of ed tech investors and I think you all's perspective is refreshing, especially because of your worldview. Let's see, speaking of worldviews, Clay was was talking about you all's investment thesis or investment focus in Latin America. I would love to to hear about your views on a Latin American startup scene. I spent a ton of time looking at it when I was at Point72, but only from the fintech lens. And I would love to believe that why, or I would love to understand why you now believe that it's the right time to invest there. Cool. I will take that. And mainly because I've been investing in Latin America since we launched our first fund in 2016. And it's funny, I, we ended up, I ended up investing in multiple companies within the first fund in Latin America for a couple of different reasons. One, I just love the culture and the, re like, I have a lot of friends down there. I love the culture. It was always uh, a lot of fun to, to go and visit. But to be honest, I think the big thing that attracted me to the region beyond having very good friends and being connected in, in the region, which made me feel comfortable as an investor, was was the fact that like our mission resonated so well within the region because if you look at it if if you're building a we're mostly b2c for the most part i would say we do some b2b investing mainly when we're looking at how do we build up infrastructure within a space to then be able to deliver a consumer product or service, but for the most part, we're B2C. If you're building a B2C company in Latin America, you're going to have to serve the everyday person or else you're not going to have a business. And that was what really resonated with me. And for, I think for uh, like us and our mission, it, it made a lot of sense for us. And that's why we ended up going down there. What was interesting though, is after I made a few investments, I actually had to re-pitch the opportunity back to my partners. And so to Alex and, and Encore and, and Katie, when we were doing the first fund, and it we ended up starting a new, like at, right after we created the, the, the first fund, we ended up starting a fund specifically called the K50 fund, which is where kind of the K50 funds came from, where we started investing in these, in 50 companies within, within a portfolio. And it 
it the like one of the reasons why we did that was because we were investing in a lot of companies outside of the US and because we didn't want to put in the amount of companies into our like initial fund we didn't want to have more than like 10 15% of our portfolio be latin american companies so we ended up starting the K50 fund so it's actually what kicked off this kind of K50 like mini franchise under Kairos which is a funny aside but the what's been really interesting is to see the opportunity like multiply by 10x and that, this is just in the last few years so most of the big opportunities are are businesses solving problems for consumers or SMBs within 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 Latin America. And you'll see the big companies that are doing really well are are either in fintech, transportation logistics or marketplaces. So you see Rappi, Loggy, Nubank, etc. Now, to get into the numbers a bit here, and we're going to be putting out a blog, so look out for that so that for all of our friends in the US, they're they're looking at and investing in Latin America will have a, a good kind of primer for you. Although there is some some info, I think that I'll give you a, a kind of a preview. So basically, there are over 650 million people throughout Latin America. Now, in order to reach a large portion of those people, you need to be in Mexico and Brazil. This accounts for almost 50% of the 600. 50 million, I think it ends up being like something like 321 million. It's really close to 50% of the, of the population is based in Brazil and Mexico. And then Colombia is the next biggest market as far as a country is concerned from a population perspective. That's actually where we started. So we landed in Colombia for multiple reasons. One, we had an LP down there and their family office was extremely helpful and was very interested in investing into early stage companies, which was great for us. Now that person is an anchor LP of K50 Ventures and is also a venture partner. So like we've definitely grown our relationship within the region and with, with, with the folks that we started there from back in 2016, which has been really cool. Now, the consumer market has always been there. Like, it's not like there's just been this like influx of people into Latin America. I think that the other thing is like mobile or like internet penetration, for instance, which is like what Mary Meeker looks at when she's looking at like a, a market in terms of specifically when consumers are like how many people are actually adopting like digital tools above 70%. And I think it's been that way for almost 10 years. But the big change in the last five years and really in the last couple of years was access to capital. I feel like there, there were always entrepreneurs. It's not like there was a, a lack of, I, I guess there is a, a lack of technology taught in uh, secondary schools which is, I think, a big challenge that the region's going to have to face as they continue to grow exponentially. But the biggest thing was access to capital, and that's access to downstream capital, which has changed. So VC funding has been doubling each year for the last few years, and exit potential. So back in 2016, 2017, when I started to make a few investments, uh, the first few investments, again, I had to pitch my partners on the actual opportunity of can this company actually exit? Not, oh, is this going to be a big company? It's, are they going to have access to capital or are they going to be able to exit? 
And so we finally have started to see exits. Like we've, we've seen exits happen from Uber, for instance, is buying companies in Latin America. Didi from, from China is buying companies. And a lot of other Chinese companies are looking at Latin America to expand into. In addition, family-owned traditional businesses are now both investing in a big way and then also buying digital native startups, which never happened in the past. And with SoftBank coming in and having a $2 billion checkbook to write checks into companies, as well as a lot of U.S. investors. So you'll see Andreessen Horowitz, you'll see Foundation Capital, and you'll see a ton of early stage investors that are now, I would say, quote unquote, focused on LATAM, which has really been in the last year. This has really opened up the playing field for entrepreneurs in the region and a lot of entrepreneurs that are coming back to the region saying, I want to build something for my country and for the folks that I've grown up with, which has been really interesting. Now, we're still very early and early stage valuations are already being pushed up by YC, go figure. But I think if you're a US-based investor looking to take advantage of the opportunity, I would really think about <laughs> getting on top of it ASAP. It is one of those things that I think it's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to get pretty crowded pretty quickly. We're already starting to see that. I'll just add a, a little anecdote that, that, that's just happened. One of our pre-seed companies, which actually is an education space based in LATAM, is, is starting their fundraising process. And friends who I've spoke to maybe six months ago at Fund and Gravecoff who would not even you know, think about taking a look at a, a, a seed stage company, be a Latin based company, are, are excited to meet teams that are, are building these Latin companies. And I think we're gonna see a lot more downstream capital getting aggressive, getting excited about investing into that space. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I, I was not surprised to see, but like, I was happy to see the amount of LATAM-based companies starting to come into the, the YC folds. And it actually is nice to start to see some of the folks who are in Latin America start to really get a lot of uptake and interest. Like, when I was looking in 2017 and 2018 in LATAM, because we've been doing like, Voila and Contabilize and a ton of other uh, totally. startups. And at point 72, it was really just us. And we'd have like our four or five folks. And I remember our partnership and everyone went to Latin America. Yo, like the world's changing for the first time. There were all these people in Uruguay just talking about tech. Now it's like everybody's doing it. There are people whose like entire function at their firm is just to have international coverage, which is phenomenal. So yeah, I definitely think that we probably got like maybe another year or two of runway before it's like effectively what we look like in terms of consumer fintech. And I can't, again, I can't speak as well to broader tech as what that looked like, I can call it 2019. Or yeah. we need to go find alpha somewhere else. Like we like to decide unless something has incredible breakout numbers or unless it's the enablement infrastructure, like you're better off looking at emerging markets. One thing that I want to do is, so one thing we do on here is we call out gyms. And you all, I believe it might have been Ryan, but I might be wrong. You made a point. Uh, about how you all are consumer investment investors. However, if you need to invest in infrastructure or a B2B company in order to get something to an end customer, then you're effectively still a consumer investor, right? That is just you investing across the life cycle of your thesis and impacting consumers. Thank and you. I think about this pretty often that like mostly everyone is 
at the end of the day, a consumer investor, right? Because like every company is one percent, and that's like something that I think all investors should just take a moment to step back and breathe and realize that stop downing consumer. All you're doing is figuring out other people are selling to them. It's I guess it's a distribution question more than it is true. Uh, you know, customer segment question, in my opinion. With that, I'll stop being philosophical and jump into the. Okay, it's pretty obvious. Uh, to us in the audience that you all are pretty mission focused, but like you all put that in your creed, like you all are mission driven fun that backs mission driven founders. Can you talk about what that actually means? Because I think that Kairos, if you back up from the fund itself, was very much so into that. And, and I think that's in your DNA and uh, you all are a really good example of what that really means. 100%. Yeah. It's basically flowing through our veins. Since we started Kairos, we've always been pretty excited about Pro, like about profit following purpose. So having a higher order that you're basically focused on and in, in delivering for whether it's your employees or whether it's for the consumers or whether it's for the planet from a sustainability factor I and mean, something that we're looking into more and more each day. Now, this is super hard to do, to be honest. And it's very hard to do when you're reading I don't know, any one of the many tech VC blogs where you're seeing all these companies raising tons of capital. And a lot of people will say like one will suffer in the pursuit of another. So if you're seeking profit, the purpose will suffer. If you're seeking purpose, like the the profit will suffer or the or you can put use profit, or sorry, use purpose and mission interchangeably. Now, I fundamentally believe, and the reason why we ended up starting our funds is because we believe that the best way to do this, like the way in which we structured it and the way in which we like put our thesis together was, was all based on like how could we solve the biggest problem for the most amount of people. And as you pointed out, our thesis is to make life better for the 99%. And we focus on finding those founders that are fixated on this higher order mission and have the ability to execute. And that's like full stop. That's what we do. This can take, this can look very different for a healthcare founder versus somebody in education. But as long as we can get aligned on mission with the founder, like everything else is gravy. Like even in our investment memos, like from day one, we knew that we were going to have to indoctrinate people into in, into like help like whether it's interns or associates or etc we actually would have people fill out who is this customer what is the problem that this particular company is solving for this customer what is this like what was this customer doing before this product actually came up like about like why does this need to exist why does it need to exist now and we go through this whole entire thing and we basically took the FOMO out of the investment analysis. So it was like, it, it didn't start with, okay, who are the funds that are in and how fast is this deal moving? It was much more on the, what is this company or product or founder going to do for the world or for this particular consumer? We, for instance, are focused on like the 99% or we've said the everyday consumer or the masses. It's all pretty much the same person. It's the person that has less than a thousand bucks in, in their savings account. They're spending 85% or more of their, of their paycheck on things like food, transportation, healthcare, housing, 
you add childcare and you add student debt in there and like the whole paycheck is gone. And for us, like there are a few funds that are investing with the mission driven thesis. There are very few funds, I would say, that are investing with the mission-driven thesis. There are more popping up now than there were a few years ago, which is like super exciting to us. Like we're very much, I, I would say, collaborative and want rising tides rise, raises all boats type of thing. But we like from the very beginning and we'll, as we build out K50 Ventures, we aim to be the fund that are mission aligned with our founders and we'll continue to be the one driving their mission forward, even as they hit bumps in the road, which are bound to happen. I'll keep, Adriel, I'm, I'm sure you have some other stuff to add, but that's where we lie when we're thinking about this. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, so my, my take on this is, you know, even if you, you take a step back and look at, at some of the history of venture capital, back years ago when you saw these funds starting to pop up in, in Silicon Valley, what they were doing was really following the, the best talent out there. And I think VCs falsely get too much credit for, for investing into people, but it's really the founders that are, are building these companies. And while the best founders, you know, historically were, were maybe building new technologies, the internet, mobile products, et cetera, the, the, the shift that I've personally seen in the last you know, decade working across the startup ecosystem is this new wave of entrepreneurs. And these are folks who've either exited companies, these are, these are people who've helped grow unicorns, people who are really setting out to, to start their first companies. And something that is, is happening is they wanna set out and solve some of the world's largest challenges, whether that's around healthcare, education, FinTech. And so for, for me, as I've started to, to engage with some of these, these founders, I've, I think the kind of the common thread here is that there's a different level of passion and this unbarred energy to, to solve these problems. And ultimately, you want to be able to back the best, you know, the best possible founders. And I think across the board for our team at K50s, we're starting to see that the, these individuals, this archetype or profile of founders being mission-driven. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. It almost goes back to what you were saying earlier, Tyler, which is like the infrastructure needed to exist in order to even deliver these consumer products and services, which we're now starting to see, or you could even say, honestly, people probably just got bored and, or like the comp competition got too stiff within some of these other sectors. And so now they're starting to say, you know what, maybe I'll go build a company in education, which is, we love seeing that. So we're super excited for the next couple of decades here. And we think that the next, you know, billion dollar or call it decacorns are going to be in the in these like going after these kind of bigger more societal like issues the fact that healthcare is super expensive and it's the number one cause of bankruptcy in the u.s and that's just ridiculous agreed totally agreed you all have this one company that i love what is it called umbrella which is like the supplemental health insurance for all yeah 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 absolutely company Phenomenal. And it's you're spot on, like lowering costs, aligning payment infrastructures, incentives, shifting towards value-based versus effectively margin-based, we're going to call it what it is, and legacy comfort-based, we're going to call it what it is. It's huge. I think that all those things are, are huge for, for just like the way that people live. And really, again, because VC tech uh, and a lot of the folks who make these decisions in their position to even have the wherewithal and connectivity to be able to start a company don't live in the like the vast majority of 
the world. Like they live in these bubbles. They don't even think about these things. So you're just, you're just doing a lot of good work. And I'm personally thanking you for it. Let's see. From here, let's talk a little bit about something that we hear about a lot, which is first there was like the A's heating up, the C's heating up, and now like the free seed itself is heating up. Just as competition increases, like you just see it naturally, right? Like public market alpha dries up, private equity alpha starts to dry up, the growth stage investors, then series A now, C now, pre-seed. And it seems like you all have figured it out. Can you talk a bit about like how the craziness and velocity of investments in the pre-seed market is evolving and how you've seen these founders like some of them get ridiculous valuations from day one, but others end up taking several months and hundreds of meetings to close their smaller, small, like much, much smaller rounds. Like from your perspective, how do you think about raising your pre-seed round as a first time founder versus a second time founder, uh, especially given that Kairos has a lot of both? I, I can take that first. And, and Adriel, I'll let you take the, the, the latter part of the question. So you were like, from day one, I kept pushing us to be extremely quick when it came to making an investment. So we try to be as quick as possible and we try to offer at least a yes or a no, like very quick and say, this is why we're not interested in this. And most often it's, this isn't a thesis fit. So we try to be, we try to do a lot of our upfront prep work before we even come into the conversation with a founder, which I think founders like, and, and it makes it easier on them. So we're okay with the velocity, I guess is what I'm saying. And there's a lot of problems out there to solve too. So I, I get why there's a lot of founder. And right now it's just, it is wild. We did 11 investments in Q1. I, I get the, the velocity is crazy. I, I think the one thing that I will note as far as, first of all, there's, if you look at first time founder versus second time founder going out to raise capital, the second time founder more, more often than not is going to have like the numbers are going to be bigger. The valuation is going to be higher. They're going to be able to raise quicker. And that's just because they have the relationships. I don't like I fundamentally don't, I can't look at some of these fundraisers and be like, oh yeah, I totally understand why that happened in terms of like why so much money came in at the valuation. I get it from a perspective of there's just a lot of money in venture right now. And so these bigger funds are trying to go down market so that they can get their, be able to invest sooner so that they can put in more capital as the, as the company grows. I totally get that. But there's for some of these things, it's just, I'm not sure what's going on in the heads of some of these investors. I'm sure they have a reason for it. They're not, they're not stupid. What I always tell first time founders is make sure you get a few investors that really know your space or potentially are just high profile. You could go either route as a piece of validation so that when you go out to raise officially, it makes that process easier and you can run a process within 30 days. This is what YC does. Like that is why see fill in, get a few investors that really know their space as a piece of validation with go to YC. It, it, it'll cost you some equity. Plenty of companies come out of there and they raise it at higher valuations. So I do think it's very worth it. I guess you have to, it, it depends on your situation, but that's what I tell most first time founders. The other big piece of advice is raise a smaller pre-seed, like don't, get caught up in the, not every founder nor every company is, is cut from the same cloth. And I think everybody has to do it their own way. It's totally cool to go raise a smaller pre-seed from friends and family, I mean us, 
and prove out your thesis a bit, build, build a, a product and get something shipped. And, and then I think you'll be able to have a better, you'll have a better options for investors, et cetera. For, for second time founders, for the most part, I, I feel like you've learned all that you needed to learn in that from doing it the first time. I'm not sure what the, what the best advice I can give, except have a few previous investors invested or else there will be this big question mark as to why this didn't happen. Yeah, I'll just quickly add to that. You have to write the founders market right now, right? There's no question about it. Money is just flying around for nearly anybody. For second time founders, the, the pre-seed round is effectively a seed round. We're seeing companies that are a month old pre-seed companies barely don't even, haven't yet figured out their business model or even really the long-term vision raising five, $6 million seed rounds because of their second time founder. I, I think it, it's something that I've been pretty pr proud of our team in terms of just being disciplined, even with this market uptick, even you know during the pandemic, as a lot of investors just held off, we kept in our lane. We focused on the problems that we wanted to solve and the best founders building them, regardless of their pedigree, their background, what their experience was. It's, they're building a multi-billion dollar company solving a problem that, that's impacting whether it's global society or 99% or and a real sustainable business is being built. We're going to, we're excited to support you. And we're, I think at the end of the day, like there will be a reckoning for some of these founders who, you know, are, are raising a ton of money and, and enjoying the benefits of this founder market, but have yet to build a true, you know, real business here. On point. You're very much so on point. I, I was thinking, I was having like a, a comical conversation with a buddy of mine recently. <laughs> You're like, maybe this is just like natural inflation mixed with an increasing wealth gap. Like where it's, what if it's just natural that things are supposed to be like getting bigger on a per round basis. And we definitely are like over indexed towards the heavy side here, but what if it's just a natural evolution of what, what the space is, but outside of that, like liberal comedy piece. Actually, let, let me ask you, do, what do you think this is? This, do you think this is a new normal or do you think there's, there is going to be somewhat of a correction that we're going to see in the next six to 12 months. Okay. So I'm actually going to ask Clay to chime in on the back end of this. So there is this post that we looked at on Twitter that to me was like, it just shifted the way I was looking at the world. I read Clay said it to me like two weeks ago and effectively what we're finding is that the cost of building things is going down dramatically because of the infrastructure plate pieces being built. And we don't think about how if you build a piece of infrastructure, just how much can be built on top of it. We're seeing that happen simultaneously across every type of function needed. All the skills that are needed that were really challenging to build before, there's an abundance of them. Whether it be like no code, whether it be app in a box, whether it be an API for whatever feature you need, all those things exist. So what, what actually is happening today is that, okay, all you have to do at this point is have like a basic understanding, like a PM level understanding of like how to build things and then be able to identify a problem. When you combine that with the fact that at this point you have infinite information on how to identify whether or not a problem is worth solving and a ton of access to capital, you start to think that someone who is at the pre-seed or the seed technically has all the resources at their fingertips immediately as someone else had to build out with tons of capital until they were ready to be at their seed plus or a so it's not ridiculous if you're looking at what can be built at the pre-seed with 
relatively little capital. If you're just looking at it on paper versus what a series C plus or series A would have looked like, call it five to 10 years ago. So if you're looking at just investing in an asset and you're not making it relative to its peers, then it's not crazy. I actually think that it makes a lot of sense. But that being said, it is relative and we haven't really shifted the way that we invest in our capital structures or our capital pools. Some really lucky investors have um, and scaled their AUM. But that itself to me makes it to where like there probably should have been somewhere in between where we are in terms of it being overinflated versus like just natural inflation. Like we probably should be somewhere within that spectrum. And I don't think that it's invalidated. And the last piece on that is just the same way that the tools to build something has come to fruition pretty quickly. The pipes to get these tools or these companies to their customers have also developed rapidly. So like mm -hmm. scaling revenue and like actually being able to get to where you're seeing all these companies like within less than a year's time being worth $500 million and some of them not at crazy revenue multiples either. You know, <laughs> there was a time where like, like Juniper networks doing their revenue growth was like unheard of. And now it's, maybe that's possible if they get the right distribution channels and partners and they actually have built the product to be scalable from day one, or they're building it on top of some amazing infrastructure that was launched in 2017. So I, I don't think it's crazy. I think investor, investors just need to have the discipline to see if that's real or not. And uh, 100%. Clay, if you have any thoughts there, please share. Oh man, we might've lost Clay. I have had to <laughs> unmute myself. Yeah, I don't know. I'm like. I'm still really early in my career, so I haven't seen these boom and bust cycles, but the way I'm thinking about it right now, and this could be the wrong framework, but it's what I'm using to think about it, is the Fed has essentially said they're going to keep rates at zero until at least 2023. So that completely disrupts traditional portfolio theory of just how the general asset manager or just regular person in general puts their money to work. So you've essentially eliminated half the equation. So you can't put your money to work in bonds. You can't put it in cash. You can't really hold it in anything other than equities. And at the same time, public equities are trading at all-time high multiples. It seems like a lot of the stuff there seems really frothy. So now you're seeing a lot of asset managers or just retail traders in general going into alternatives, which is really interesting. And I think we're only at the tip of the iceberg there. It's the reason why crypto has exploded in the last 12 months. It's the reason why the U.S. dollar continues to be devalued by the day. So as that comes to fruition more and more, I think there's just nowhere else to put your money to work. I think the biggest question I have is, especially at pre-seed and seed, I just don't know where this money is being used as a founder. Like you're raising five to 10 million plus at the pre-seed without a product. I guess you have to build out a product team that's pretty expensive, put in the sales and marketing, which is a black box in terms of trying to find targeted ads. But like your retail pre or your real estate presence is gone. You don't need to buy any office space. At least most startups are preferring not to. So I think that's the biggest question I have. Like I haven't really dug into it that much with founders. I'm just like, you are raising these massive rounds. Where's the money going to work? Yeah. But something to consider. I, I, I don't have an answer for it. I think you're 100% right. As far as where it's going to work, I, I don't think the founders can actually pinpoint exactly what that is. I think what they're doing is they're just taking more swings on more like riskier experiments. Instead of taking one, instead of doing one experiment, they're doing three at a time, but uh, that would be my guess. Hopefully, hopefully it's going somewhere productive. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's interesting. Time will tell. By, by the way, Bitcoin just hit a, a new all-time highs while you were talking. 60, almost 64, 63. You're lying. Tyler, it sounds like you are, are an active investor in Bitcoin. <laughs> I'm like, I would call 40 to 50 plus percent of my liquid cash is in Bitcoin and Ethereum. Yeah. I love it. I'm uh, pretty. That, sounds like we're talking to, a, uh, to an upcoming LP. I mean, I'll be your LP if you be ours. Let's do it. <laughs> Isn't that how Silicon Valley works? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I'm actually just like full of glee right now. So I'm, I'm going to do some jumping jacks or something. Clay, can you jump into this fee round? And I guess before that, if you all or, or Jessica, who decided to be quiet, who's awesome, have any questions for us, go ahead and ask, and then we'll kick it off from the speed round. No questions from me. Let, yeah, let me ask you guys something. And we'll get into this in, in, in the speed round in probably a second. But as you guys have started to build this almost professional development community and network, which, you know, which I think is incredible, it's something that I wish I had before I got into this career and in the beginning of my career. What is, you know, one or two pieces of insight that you've been able to pick up on to, uh, as you started to see this is very, really, you know, uh, from my perspective, it's a new industry that's emerging, right? In terms of venture capital. So what are, you know, one or two learnings that you've had building this community? Tyler, you want me to go first? I'm still doing jumping jacks. Right, I'll try to simplify it to call. I feel like I've learned so much over the past nine, 10 months, however long we've been doing it. But I think first realize the power of curation. I think there's endless amounts of information on the internet. I think people stop and take a look at what you're doing when you do a lot of upfront work of curating resources, links, something else. It just helps people find what they're looking for easier. That's kind of how we got our foot off the ground, building this aggregated resource library and the previously opaque industry. We've learned firsthand how powerful onboarding messages can be. That's something we're still playing around with daily, figuring out how to best provide new users with information that matters to them and then try to get them to steer them towards doing the action steps that we would want them to do, which be active and engaged within the community we built. That's something I just, before this, never really spent that much time thinking about it because it's not the sexiest topic in the world. And then lastly, I'd just say that like we're experiencing every day how powerful communities can build can be especially online communities i think that's becoming a bigger buzzword recently but community maintenance takes a lot of time takes a lot of time to, to build that up and make sure that people are posting in the right channels making sure everything's clean and not messy i think everybody's involved in a number of slack groups where that isn't always the case so we've learn firsthand just how much work that is but if you do the upfront work i think people do appreciate it on the back end I would echo that. And then I would also just, one, I want to say that like this model is emerging. Like you'll see an on deck exist, which is effectively a community that's evolved into an educational platform that's evolved into effectively like a fund-ish slash business-ish slash somehow investors believe it'll become a billion something dollar company-ish thing, which is phenomenal. So shout out, Eric. But let's take it with the business aspect of it. I think what I've learned is just like how human this whole industry is and how if you just break down what each of these things is like when you look at what clay's talking about of like if you just make it easy for people to like get what they need and you well curate it it's just what i'm seeing is like people who are normal in a space needing to learn and figure things out 
and be vulnerable and connect with their peers who are experiencing the same thing. And what I've noticed is whether it's someone who's like a buddy of ours at a cell or Greylock or someone at a firm we've never heard of, they're all trying to figure out the same exact thing. Like, how do I get faster at making investment decisions? How do I like actually take a step back and look at what's actually happening in Latin, Latin America? How do I actually support a founder who probably knows more about this than I do? There's all these things that if like you just keep the human element in, you win. So like me and Clay had this moment where we were building something and I'm not going to name drop what the thing is, but we realized that the reason that we weren't seeing as much success on that particular thing is because we weren't truly serving our audience. We were serving an adjacent audience that wasn't our audience and it just wasn't picking up the steam and it was a huge brain suck for us and energy and emotional like carnage piece for us because yo, like we don't even truly understand this problem because we we are we identify with VCs, and I think that what we're learning is that like as we build this and like as it like takes on a life of its own because at this point it, we don't even grow it it just grows on its own and people are contributed everything is UGC at this point or user generated content for those who are listening who don't know what that means because we do have some like non VC folks or VC folks who don't focus on companies that do that like as long as you continue to understand the human element. And then as K50 does, as long as you're looking to serve the broader community and improve their quality of life, the profits or the benefits and whether that be social, political, cultural, et cetera, profits, they'll come. And that's what me and Claire are learning as two young, arguably entrepreneurs or community leaders or investors or even operators at this point, because I think both of us are starting to do operating roles as well. That's a, a key lesson learned is just focus on your audience and the human piece of it and everything else will follow. You have the tools to enable, I guess, the mitigation of stress for your audience. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, so cool. Clay, you wanna click kick us off with these quick fires? And don't forget, you, yeah. always, you always forget, in doing so, at the end of this, we also wanna hear who you wanna have on the, the Confluence community and podcast. Oh, interesting, okay, cool. So I'm going to, I'm going to just run through these real quick. So we have these at the end, call them quick fire questions meant to be answered in two sentences or less. First one we have is what is a recommendation you hear regularly that you think is bad advice? Uh, I, I can kick this off, Ryan. Lately, I've been hearing a lot of investors tell founders to raise as much as they can right now. Yes, it is a founder's market and probably fair. It's a bit easier to, to raise money than usual. But I, again, I think they're, they're, this, that strategy is going to backfire. So my advice to founders is always raise the amount of money you need to build a business, raise that the necessary runway to, to get there and prove your milestones up. Yeah, we've seen some of the same and heard some investors give the same advice. I think another thing just kind of along the same point there is to understand safes and convertible notes, because we've had a lot of founders, at least a pre-seed, I've worked with some in the past that have just raised on three or four convertible notes. And then once they finally get that equity raise, they realize how much they diluted themselves. Yeah. Same vein there. Okay. So next one we have in the last Yo, year. On, on that point, really oh, quickly. I, I just think that one, if you do need to think about dilution and protecting yourself, but what I would say is like founders who do decide to raise a ton of money, just be smart about how you spend it. Like at the end of the day, you have to grow into the milestones needed for you to get to the next round or you're going to die. <laughs> So if you get a ton of money, be incredibly disciplined with how you spend it, especially those who've already decided to take that leap. Agreed. All right, next one. In the last year, what new belief, behavior, habit has most improved your life? I forget what book this was 
somebody mentioned it to me. I forget what book it's from, but if it's not a hundred percent, yes to no. And that is, is a belief. And then I got rid of my apartment in October and it's been super liberating. And that's also been a, a behavior that's happened over the last uh, six months. Are you nomadic right now? Correct. Yes. Love it. I'm nomadic too. I'm, uh, I'm never nice. going back. I, I'm uh, going to be nomadic starting next month. So uh, maybe I'll have to pick up some tips from you guys. But yeah. just to answer this question, this is a, it's a bit cliche, but I can't tell you guys enough of how much it makes a difference, but meditating. And I think there's just, life is just moving so quickly right now on a lot of different levels. And to just take a moment to pause and uh, just be in that personal space is, is something that I've found to be pretty effective for me. Yeah, we've heard that from a couple of guests and Tyler, I don't know if you do it. I've, I'm terrible about actually stopping and doing that myself. Cause like you literally only need five to 10 minutes a day to do that and just center and just realize all the stuff that matters or stuff you can control. I need to get better at that myself. But now we've heard that answer from a couple of people. I should probably take that advice. Not yeah. easy. It's not easy. There's a little podcast that, or, or the, one of the, I don't know, one of the podcasts that uh, Deepak Chopra has. And one of the, he does 10 minute podcasts. I forget which one this is in particular, but he talks about morning routine. And in there, it's like a five minute morning routine. And it includes like somewhat meditation, but mainly just a little breathing and, and like having gratitude. And I always, I've, recently started to employ that and it's been incredible that yeah. and not looking at your freaking cell phone like when you're right when you get up and or having it in bed next to you and going to your email automatically <laughs> first of all completely wrecks your circadian rhythm and second of all i think it, it can throw you into a spiral right when you get up which is not good totally agree totally. i decided like a month ago that the cell phone will become obsolete and that I'm sick of it and I'm just over it. <laughs> Holograms or something ASAP. Like I just can't do this form factor. I can't keep living in a box. Yeah. Oh, so not cool. <laughs> in a business card. All right, cool. We got three more here. So it's on the business side, aside from having to say no all the time, what's the worst part about venture? For me, it's so clear. It's the egos on both I mean, I'm sure I have one too so I'm not I'm not I can't escape it but it, it's just you can get caught up in this I think a lot of us get caught up in this kind of masters of the universe situation especially as an investor and or as a second time or third time founder and I think that's when I come across it I just cringe I'm like oh I can't do this <laughs> I don't want to talk to yeah. this person but yeah 100% agree I, I think and it goes back to your point, Tyler, around this is a very human industry and uh, we forget about that sometimes. There's just yeah, way too much. So I second, 100% second what, what Ryan says, and I'll, I'll add to that on the venture front, the lack of professional, professional development in, in terms of the resources and mentorship available to, to be successful in this industry. And a lot of that is due to these egos and to the support system that people have. So I think that, again, hats off to you guys of thinking about building that some resources and tools and support system for people in this industry. Yeah, we're trying our best. Yeah, I mean, like the thesis for us of starting it was like we wanted something like this because it didn't exist and we struggle with everything you guys just laid out there. Like we didn't really have, at least I'm speaking for myself here, I didn't have like strong mentor network, uh, especially coming from a non-target area. Didn't really have any 
insight on what would be best practices for me to like actually move up the chain and succeed in the role. So I agree with all that along with the fact that like some people in this industry are just not very relatable and tough to talk to. But I think it's getting better. We've met a lot of really cool people. There's like every, there's a couple of bad apples in there, but, but for the most part, we've, we've only had good interactions. <laughs> but no, you're talking about. All right, so got two more here. So a lot of the audience here is junior-ish within their firm. So analyst at principal level. What's your best piece of advice for junior VCs or those aspiring to break into venture? Why don't you go first, Adriel? Oh man, we kind of have a whole conversation around this. I'll keep it. I'll, I'll keep it short. We'll try to meet with as many founders as you possibly can, whether they're raising money or not raising money or have already had successful businesses. Talk going back to our point around all of this activity at the, you know, especially at the early stages, and this kind of idea. There's so many companies raising a ton of money. Valuations are super high. The one, the one kind of common. Uh, thread here is that the, the, the successful companies over time is based on those teams. And if you can start building your pattern recognition, start building your insights and creating that, that profile for yourself of what a successful founder is based on the, these characteristic and, and trait uh, through characteristic and trait identification of, of meeting founders and lean on that, that will make you a successful investor. Um, all right. So I have two like Call, I call them like pocket tricks, something that you could potentially go and put into practice immediately. One, if you have 5,000 bucks saved up, which I know a lot of people don't, but if you do take five, take a thousand bucks and go and actually place some angel investments yourself. I think it's always good when a young investor comes in and says they have already made angel investments make sure that the investments are awesome. And I think you can honestly put in like a thousand bucks. If, if you're helpful to a founder, they'll do, they'll let you do that. Especially it shows that you can source. It shows that you can build a relationship with somebody. It shows that somebody's willing to let invest for a thousand bucks. If you can't do that, I totally get it. I was definitely in that boat. I would go and work for free for a great angel investor. And I specifically say angel investor for two reasons. One on Adriel's point, being able to meet as many founders as possible. This, so there's two things about working for an angel investor. One, angel investors don't do this full time. For the most part, they don't. They're always looking for somebody to help with deal flow. Now you need to be friends with this person or else like it, it just would be almost impossible to do. But if you can, a cold email can go a long way. Most of them need this. And I think you'll have a leg up on deal flow where you'll get to wear quote unquote, like the family office hat where you'll be acting on behalf of this angel investor, which I think is not something that a lot of kind of, I would call early investors have thought of or would do. Let me just add one more thing to that. So if for those who may not have um, the capital or feel like they have the, the connections that to, to do either of those things, you can still do the job of, of a VC without being a VC. And what I mean by that, exactly what Ryan's mentioning, meet with as many, meet with as many founders as possible and build a quote unquote portfolio, right? So companies that you invest in and maybe even write little memos with them, even though you might not exactly invest in them, but you're still going through that process of having a meeting with the founder, learning about the business, uh, processing, analyzing you know, the individual and the opportunity. And if you build that portfolio, maybe it's 30, 50, 100, 200 companies 
over time, then you're already starting to build that skill set as an investor. Love it. That was great advice. Yeah, I heard none of that when I was coming in. I wish I would have. That's would have helped me probably get on a better trajectory. That's awesome. So last one here, aside from the, I'll let Tyler handle the very last one, but last one from my end, who's a mentor that you'd want to give credit to? Mine is pretty easy. It's Alex Fiance, who's been my business partner for the last five years, but he's, he's always been there for me in personal and professional challenges and opportunities and really helped me with getting a KPD Ventures off the ground. And he serves as, as our, our board member and it's been great getting to work with him for the last five years. So hats off to you, Alex. Thank you for, for the late night calls and the early morning texts. I, I would say this is an interesting one, but my twin brother, who's a He's a CEO of a company and man, I got always keeping me grounded. Like the, the amount of grit and hustle I see and resilience I see from him as an entrepreneur is, is always, you know, and having that, that kind of daily conversation, weekly conversation, regardless of time about whether it's his challenges, my challenges and having that support system and him just keeping me honest is it's a, a special gift that I'm, I'm super thankful for. Yeah. Having a twin that's on the other side of the table, I feel like that's a competitive advantage for you. That's awesome. <laughs> That should be baked into the pitch. Yahweh, Tyler, you got one more. I was going to say, the drill, last question. Everything we do is for the community, by the community, UGC. Who do you all think should be in the Confluence community that may not be already? And who do you all believe would be very interesting for our venture capital community as a whole to know more about on the podcast? So I have a group that I recently met that I really like what they're doing. They're young guys. I think they're doing something pretty special in Brazil. It's called Norte Capital, N-O-R-T-E Capital. They've basically gotten like all the top founders from Brazil to be LPs in the fund. I don't know how big the fund is, but they've been incredibly collaborative, even though like we just met, they've, I like the way they think they're smart. I think they're, they're doing something very cool for the Brazilian startup ecosystem and in, in Latin America in general. So I'd toss their name in the ring. Oh, go for it. Go for it. Yeah. Happy to. I, I, don't, I don't know if you guys have, have brought on board anyone from the left lane capital team, but yes, I think in terms of just, I'm obviously, <laughs> I think Ryan and I are examples of this, but I'm a big fan of the, of kind of the young investors building their own funds, being entrepreneurial, kind of rustling the feathers of, of traditional venture a little bit. I and mean, I think those guys are doing something, you know, pretty exciting and in a, in a similar boat, a little bit later stage than us. And then one of, one of my, one of our former partners at Kairos actually went out and started her own fund recently. Like, I think she did. Yeah, get, get her on. Just her. first close. She's incredible. Her name's Katie Shea. The fund is called Divergent. And she is a really great partner, two female VCs that I think are going to take the pre-seed kind of seed stage by storm. So I would also talk to, to talk to them. Would love to, would love to. Yo, question for you all. Um, this is a, a tangent or like a side note. I, I will probably leave it in the um, leave it in the podcast because why not? But uh, you tell us if you don't want us to. What are some tips you all have for young people raising funds? Like Clay and I are technically raising a small fund, and it's kind of like you're shooting in the dark, and like every day you're like, dude, I can't believe you just talked to this LP, or like, dude, we actually are pulling the trigger here. And for us, because we're doing a part of the syndicate model as well. 
we're arguably making this decision in front of 1500 people every single time. But how do you all, or what do you all advise that we do to, you know, make sure this process runs smoother or like tips that you all need or wish you had earlier on in your process? I'll say one quick thing and then that Ryan answer this between the two of you, just keep the communication channels open and the more you can communicate between each other and I think be, be aligned as you build this, I think that you have a lot of, you have, you have a lot of support going through this. I feel like this is a lot, this is a longer conversation, but I think the, some of the main points is that I think are often overlooked one most of the investors that are going to back you in your first fund are people that you already know, period. You will get on a few <laughs> new investors. I think that you might know tangentially, or you might bring on a few investors from the people that you already know that are already going to invest, that are going to introduce their friends. But by and large, the people that you that are going to invest in your fund are, are people that you already know. Two, don't sleep on on your friends that are also VCs. I think there's lots of folks out there that would be willing to throw in a little bit of money into a first-time fund. Most of the time, first-time funds from emerging managers often perform the best. So as far as like looking for alpha in an asset class, like getting into an early stage first-time fund by two folks like yourself, I think is something that a lot of people might want that you already know, again, that are not your traditional LPs who are going to throw in a million bucks. And then three, I would just be very clear on what you're investing in why and why you're investing in it. Like why you is the, I think the, why you and how, how does that change over time and what is going to be your true North star? I think that's my, those are my three, I would say two pieces of advice, one around fundraising and then one around just general strategy and happy to send you a, a fund model in case if you don't have one that you're working off of currently, I've gone through a bunch and it's always helpful because it just is able to, you can test a bunch of different strategies with this model. Yeah, that would be really appreciated. I just saw one in Chase Cohen's email and I built one for us. And it's, it's okay. It's not like the best. Everyone, everyone has one and then you get some something from like a friend that's I, I got it actually from an LP who who clearly would just plug in. Guys, I'm no, no, thank well, you guys for having us. Tons of fun. Let's definitely, you know, continue the conversation offline. I'm sure we have some exciting things to collaborate on. For sure. Have a beautiful okay. day. Have a good one. Huge thanks again to Ryan and Adriel for coming on this week. And we hope that each of you are able to pick up something valuable from this talk. If you're looking to get in touch with either of them, we've linked their bio and their social profiles within the description below. You can also find their contact info within the Confluence BC directory. For next steps, if you're an investor and have not already signed up to join, we encourage you to check out our website at www.confluence.vc to submit your info to become a member. If you have any feedback for us, please feel free to reach out directly either to Tyler at tyler at gpv.com or myself at clay at muckercapital.com. Hope to hear from you all soon.